Right then, Fictoplasm Advent Calendar Day 3, White Fang by Jack London. White Fang was published in 1906 and it was first serialised in Outing magazine. I assume that's outing as in you know, going out camping rather than something else. It basically covers the... Um, it covers the trials of a wild wolf-dog hybrid called White Fang, who embodies the advantages of both animals. And it's set in five acts, so um, book one, or act one, comes from the human perspective with a team of dog sledders transporting a coffin across the wastes. And I don't think we ever find out what's in the coffin. Um, now, they've been stalked and picked off by wolves, and there is one particularly cunning wolf in that pack who later turns out to be white fang's mother and then in acts two through five it's all from the wolf's perspective and it's first from the perspective of kitchy who's a she-wolf um and white fang's mother and um it's mostly concerned about white fang's childhood and his life growing up as a cub then in book three white fang and kitchy are taken by the mackenzie's indians and White Fang is then domesticated by, mastered by, a uh, a person called Grey Beaver. And here he kind of lives a fairly miserable solitary life, being bullied by the dogs in the camp and until he proves himself a better fighter than them all. In book four, we see White Fang ends up being sold to a white man called Beauty Smith. Grey Beaver a bit... Grey Beaver by this time has become an alcoholic and um, has basically sold off an awful lot of his wealth and they make a lot of money by um, trapping elk and moose and skinning them and then selling skins and furs to, to the white townsfolk. So Grey Beaver ends up giving White Fang to Beauty Smith who then basically uses him for dogfighting. This makes um, White Fang even more isolated and miserable. And then towards the end of book four, he's rescued by his um, the person who's going to be his master for the rest of his life, a character called Whedon Smith, who's this well-connected gold prospector. And Smith effectively tames White Fang. Um, well, not tames is wrong. He forms this sort of loving bond with White Fang. So what you've got to understand is up until now, White Fang has been educated to be in human society and obey a certain set of laws that he didn't really understand and whenever he broke them you know like stealing meat or whatever or running away he would be beaten and he would be beaten a lot so all he ever knew was a beating to be beaten into obedience and then suddenly this this um his new benign master uh treats him completely differently, treats him as, um, you know, treats him with kindness and forms um, a very strong emotional bond. And that's pretty much uh, leads us to book five, where Whedon Smith has to, where Whedon Smith has to go back east. Um, and White Fang ends up travelling with him, despite the original plan that, you know, that there's no way I could bring him onto a, uh, onto my estate in a, in the civilised east. But he does, and he eventually becomes the you know the the beloved animal of um, of the estate, and even gains the grudging respect of Smith's father, who's a judge. In a sort of in a very short sequence towards the end, where he is almost killed fighting off um, an intruder who is a um, 
a, a, a former convict who the judge convicted. And so that's the basic arc. But there's a couple of really interesting things that come out of it in the way that London has presented this thought and the way that White Fang is integrated in th into the societies he's forced to live in. Um, a lot of it, it talks about how his experiences shape him, how when he came into, for example, the Indian camp, he was wild, but he was also much more playful and optimistic and sociable. And the whole brutal experience in the Indian camp um, turns him into a, a solitary fighter and, you know, resentful of everyone uh, and you know feeling that he is unable to rely on anyone else but also he's a really smart animal and a lot of it is about how his instinct to do something is tempered by what he's learned which um, comes to the next couple of, of points one is that uh, he recognizes the humans around him as gods and and this made me think just recently that let's say we when we play a role-playing game and let's say we're being animals and there are humans there we tend to think of them as humans and as having uh civilization and drives and motives rather than as animals um the really interesting thing in white fang is is the way that he views the uh he views all of his masters as gods. Certainly he views Grey Beaver and the other Indians as on the camp as gods. And he also learns that gods fight amongst each other, which was really interesting from a sort of learning myth perspective. Uh, there's one part where he kills the dogs of other, uh, of, of other men in the defence of Grey Beaver's son. And he learns that he expects for that to get a beating like he has every single time for fighting other dogs. And um, and instead, he's praised and, and given the best cuts of meat. And he realises that there are certain hierarchies both in the canine social structure and the human social structure. But yeah, what this made me think most of is that... Um, the presentation you would have to do if you were going to run a game where you're playing animals but there are humans about and they're either a threat obviously or if they try to domesticate you and you know they're they have you in your household they then become providers and caregivers but also capable of punishment and yeah that effectively makes them gods so the question is what do the uh, what does the animal learn from the god um white fang notes there are a number of laws that he's gradually learning no one's ever told him these laws because of course you know, he doesn't actually communicate with anyone verbally but no he's had to learn all the laws by trial or error by trial and error but he he recognizes them as laws as things that he must do or he must not do and he associates them with penalties so and just that expression of him conceptualising them as laws and gods is a, a mark of how intelligent White Fang supposedly is. And the last thing, of course, is um, there are hierarchies amongst the dogs. Yes. So White Fang is a loner. Um, the hierarchies are 
implied to derive from the owner gods um, in that it's a law to transgress against some of them. But in a lot of cases, the dogs are, are left to their own devices around the camp, for example. So when White Fang gets into fights, no one really intercedes. Uh, but it's only when he transgresses against a human master or somebody else who the human master doesn't want to offend, then that that's when he gets the punishment from his master or his god. I've not really played much in the way of role-playing games that involve playing animals. So I don't really feel I can comment on that aspect, but I think it's inevitable that if you were going to put yourself in the head of an animal with humans nearby, you would... Um, you would... It requires effort to then conceive of humans as other than humans, instead as a mythical force or a god or... Um, a malevolent force of nature um, because I think we tend to you know personalize the humans when actually they're relatively faceless until they get a particular identity with the animal that regards them because otherwise they're just a, a faceless horde of whatever they're doing you know particularly usually they're transgressing against nature and that becomes a, a lot of the you know the big thematic struggle of a lot of things like watership down but I thought the, the way that White Fang regarded the gods and the fact that he's interacting with them all the time, that they're ever-present in his life, but they are somehow supernaturally imbued, um, that was really interesting in the way that it made me think about what it would be like with games where you do have a close proximity to gods. Um, there's a there's a two book sequence by Greg Keyes called the Waterborn the Waterborn and the Black God, and they refer to things. It's, it's a I don't know as a fairly primitive tribal uh, society that one of the protagonists comes from, and a lot of it's about the river god, um, and the 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 power of the river that is concentrated in the on the seat of civilization so it has a very sort of rune questy feel to it you've got the dichotomy of sort of you know the the barbarian or the primitive cultures and the civilized cultures um but the way they regard gods there are they're obviously just spirits but they call them gods because it's more novel and a more interesting way of dealing with it um what that does is it recognises those gods are all on a particular scale, going from things that are tiny all the way up to things that are really huge. And we would legitimately say, yes, that's a god because it is um, immensely powerful and clearly supernatural and, um, you know, exists on, on, on the hierarchy way above us. Anyway, I don't have much more to say about that. Um, so... I suppose I better open door three of the advent calendar. Just a moment. Let's uh, get this over here. Okay. Oh, that's moose jerky. Mmm. Well, very good. All right. Until next time. Bye. Victor Plasm Podcast. Words by Ralph Lovegrove. Music by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at victorplasm.net. <laughs>